You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Well, family, good morning again. Good morning. So good to see you. Uh, For those of you, if it's your first time, my name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Thank you so much for joining us this morning and choosing to worship with us. If it is your very first time here, we'd love to offer you a gift this morning, a tumbler or a sippy cup, and you can get that over at the uh, info desk after the service, and if it's your first time, that is our gift to you. If you'd like more information about our church, have questions, or uh, there's something we can be praying about for you, there should be a slip in the seat back in front of you. You can take that, fill it out, and then put it in the offering slot, which is right over there. You know, many of us have spent the last year thinking about COVID, and uh, we wanted to know at a very personal level, okay, how is it transmitted? What's my risk level? How do I know if I have it, right? I got an itchy throat. Is that COVID? I'm sniffing. Is that COVID? But when you take a step back, it's amazing to think about how many things could kill you. I was reading this morning uh, an article, actually, about nine diseases that can kill you in less than 24 hours, and it's a great way to start your day, reading articles like that. And and to make matters worse, you can have an incredibly deadly disease and have almost no adverse symptoms whatsoever. You could be carrying it and have absolutely no idea. Now, if you're a hypochondriac, you're probably thinking, thank you, Jeff, for ruining my day and making me think about that. Well, I'm not trying to make you paranoid, but I do think it's instructive, it's interesting that one of the primary ways the Bible talks about sin is as sickness. It's a sickness of the soul. Jesus says, I did not come for those who are well, but those who are sick. The the Bible describes sin as this parasitic, destructive force that, that sort of metastasizes and everything it touches, it ruins. Now, if that's the case, if sin is this sickness of the soul, the next natural question to ask is, okay, well, what are the symptoms? How do I know if I'm infected? How do I know if sin is taking reign in me? And I think here is where we need to be really careful, because for many of us, when we think about sin and the symptoms of sin, we immediately go to the craziest, most extreme acts of wickedness, we can think of and say, that's sin. We go to the most heinous injustices imaginable. This week, I was reading about William Denson. Uh, Denson prosecuted the men who were responsible for Dachau and the, the concentration camps there. And, and hearing his testimony is so interesting because according to him, when he first presented the case, a lot of people didn't believe him. And they didn't believe him, not because there wasn't evidence. In fact, there was overwhelming evidence for everything that had taken place there. What people found hard to believe is that anyone could possibly do what they did there. It just seemed too insanely evil to be true. But here's what's even more sobering to me, that as so many of those Nazis faced trial, many people assumed that when they got on the defendant's stand, they would be monsters, that these people would be clearly psychopaths or just the most menacing people imaginable. And when they appeared in court, so many of them came across as normal, pleasant, friendly, 
marriages intact, families intact, good citizens, employees. One writer has said that those people are not fundamentally different than us. Actually, they're just us under extreme conditions. That's a sobering thought because what it tells me is that I am capable of far more wickedness than I'd ever imagined, that there's actually a monster that's resident in all of us, and while the symptoms might look different, there is this condition, and it's endemic to humanity. And that's the important thing I want you to consider this morning, that sin in the Bible is not fundamentally actions. Sin is a condition. Sin is a state in which the world finds itself, in which every human finds itself. And so the key question to ask is, okay, what are the symptoms? We might go to the full-blown symptoms, but the reality is that there are far more subtle symptoms that we are succumbing to the cancer, and we might not even be aware of them. One thing Genesis 3 is helpful in, and as we look at it this morning, is in showing us just how insidious sin is and the symptoms are. So we're looking at the fallout from the fall this morning, the consequences of sin. Before we do that, let's pray and ask God for our help, for his help. God, I know that until sin is bitter, your mercy will not be sweet. That God, until we know how bad the bad news is, we won't rejoice in how good the good news is of what you have done to save us. And so, God, would you mercifully awaken us to the insidiousness of sin, how pervasive it is in our lives, how subtle the symptoms are, God, would we see our desperate need for you, that the solution isn't in us. No, the problem is in us, and you are the solution. That we would run from our sin and cling to your grace, Jesus. Teach us this morning from your word, we pray. Amen. So last week, Genesis 3, we look at the fall of humanity, humanity's rebellion against God, and we looked at the nature of sin. That's the fall. This week's the fallout. What happens after Adam and Eve sin? What are the consequences of the rebellion? The Bible sums up the consequences of sin in one word, and that word is death. The consequence of sin is death. You might remember what God says, Genesis 2, 17. He says to Adam and Eve, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The New Testament way of putting that is Romans 6.23, where Paul says the wages of sin is death. Sin always pays a wage, on time, every time. You serve it, it will compensate you with death. That is an inviolate law. If you serve sin, it will pay you back in death. Here's the paradox. Here's the question that I think is percolating in our heads when we read Genesis 3. Adam and Eve eat of the fruit, but on the day they eat of it, they don't die. <laughs> they live. In fact, you read on to Genesis 5, they live for a very long time. They have kids. And so how do we reconcile that? Because at face value, it looks like the wages of sin is a long and fruitful life. And that's why we need to look deeper than face value. And ask this question, when God says, on the day you eat of it, you surely die, what death is he talking about? It's bigger than physical death. 
There's a kind of death that our first parents did die on the day they rebelled, and it has three components to it. Spiritual death, psychological death, and social death. This is the wage that sin ultimately always pays. And in Scripture, death is more than the physical loss of life. Death is being cut off from something. It is the corruption of goodness. It is the decay of the world. The eventual consequence of sin is physical death. The immediate consequences, though, are three things right here. That when we sin and when our first parents sin, we are cut off from God. We're cut off from ourselves. We're cut off from each other. So let's look at each of these and the symptoms that this is our condition. Starting with spiritual death, this is the foundational consequence of sin. Verse 22, we've looked at this already. Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, when Adam and Eve sinned, and we saw this last week, Eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in effect, is this. Adam and Eve saying that we claim the prerogatives of God as ours. We want to play God. Knowing good and evil is saying that we will independently determine right from wrong. We don't need your help, God. We're creating our own rules. We're creating a civilization. Apart from you, this is our declaration of independence. That's what humanity does. They claim prerogatives that belong to God alone, say we want to be our own gods, and God's judgment is what? To cast them out of his presence. Cast them out of his presence. Now, this is a judgment on God's part. We've seen throughout this study that the garden is a kind of temple. It's a sanctuary. And in the Old Testament, a temple is where God's presence uniquely dwells. And that was Eden. It was this temple sanctuary, and God casts them away from the temple, away from his presence. And isn't it interesting, there are two cherubim, these angels that guard the way to the garden. That might remind you of something else in the Old Testament. You remember the the temple and the construction of the temple, and in the the holiest place where God's presence dwells, there's a box, right? The Ark of the Cup, you've seen Indiana Jones, there's the box, right? Right? And in the box, that is where God's presence uniquely dwells. And you remember what's on top of the box? Two angels guarding the presence of God, guarding the way to the holiest place. And you see that same imagery here that now guardians are needed because of sin to keep humanity from entering the presence of God. Humans can no longer dwell in God's presence. Now, the reason that humans can't dwell in God's presence is not so much because God just can't stand the presence of humans. It's that humans can't stand in the presence of God. That that God is light, sin is darkness. We're part of the darkness. When light and darkness meet, darkness gets eradicated. Darkness is cast out, and now we cannot bear to live in the presence of God, not because he's so bad, but because he's so good. We, We cannot endure his holiness, and so God casts us away, and that's why the first thing Adam and Eve do after they sin is what? They hide. You were supposed to fill in that blank, okay? Just, that's why I paused. We're getting there, all right? They hide. 
Remember what it says earlier? And when they heard the sound of the Lord while God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. When kids do something wrong, what do they do? <laughs> they run. They hide. I remember the first time I did this as a kid, I was, I was having a stick fight with my cousin. It was a great idea. Um, we got these bamboo sticks from my grandma's backyard, and we're hitting each other, and, and he's like three years younger than me, so this, there was a lot of bad ideas that, that came to fruition here, and so I thought, I'm going to go easy on him, and then he's not going easy on me, and he's, he's swinging, I'm like, all right, if you want to do that, right? And I, I remember hitting him across the knuckles with that bamboo stick, and he's just like, ah, and he drops it, and then his mom is like, ah, right? And I, I knew I'm the older kid, so I'm going to get blamed, right? What do you do? I hide. Just ran into the bamboo. Hit that. Why do we do that? At some level, when we do something wrong, there's guilt, there's shame, and what it produces is this sense that I can't bear for you to look at me. Don't, I just, I can't stand your gaze when that happens. And that's what Adam and Eve are experiencing now. The reason humans feel that when they do wrong is ultimately because we sin against God and we can't bear his presence. We can't bear to think that we are guilty before him. This, this English translation, it really underplays what's happening here. It says that God came to them in the cool of the day, walking in the garden. And that just sounds really leisurely, doesn't it? Just the cool of the evening. Sounds kind of walking along. That is not what's happening here. The, the Hebrew literally is that God came in the wind of that day. When God's presence shows up, there's the, the sound or voice of God coming to the garden. There's the wind in the garden. When God's presence shows up in the Old Testament, you get loud sounds, you get wind. Job 38, God appearing in the whirlwind before Job. Sinai, when God appears, there's loud voices, there's wind. It's unbearable. The holiness of God is bearing down and we cannot bear it. That is what is happening here. God institutes this judgment. He casts humanity away. But what I want you to see is there is mercy even in God's judgment. He says, lest they take from the tree of life, he casts them out and live forever. There were two trees, and the tree of life was this tree that humanity would eat from to continue living in physical life, independence with God. But now humanity has been corrupted. They're independent from God. There is something fundamentally wrong with humanity. And what God is saying there is, I will not allow humanity to just go on existing forever in their corrupted state. This is not a solution for them to go on. They need to be saved. They can't just go on. That's a mercy that death puts a stop to our alienation and creates the possibility of what? Resurrection later in the story. It's also a stop on human wickedness. It would not be a good thing for us to live together in our, in our current state. And, and in fact, when people live longer in the Bible, it just multiplies wickedness over generations. Things get worse because of the corrupting nature of sin. So there is a mercy in God putting this limit on humanity here. But I want you to see that there's two sides to alienation. There's God's side, that he cast us away in judgment from his presence, but then there's our side of alienation, which is this, that, that sin, the internal logic of sin alienates us from God. 
Think about it. Sin is a declaration of independence from God, right? So when you say, God, I don't want your presence or your purposes, you're alienating yourself from God just as much as God is casting you away. That's why Paul in Romans 1 talks about God giving us over to what we want, to to these corrupted desires for self-rule and autonomy. And, And this gets to the root problem for us. The root problem is spiritual death. And in the Bible, spiritual death is being cut off from God's blessing presence. It's being cut off. Our spirits were intended to be tethered to God's in close communion with him. Sin is this destructive power, the power of hell, tearing apart heaven from earth. And so even when we are born alive physically, we're born dead spiritually because we're born alienated from God. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He goes on to define that in Ephesians 4, verse 18. You are alienated from the life of God. That's our root problem, is that because of our sin, God has hidden his face from us, and we have hidden our face from God. We don't want his rule. We can't endure his presence. That's death. That's the fundamental problem. How do you know if you have experienced the consequence of that in your life? You hide. You hide. If you want to know if you're experiencing the destructive power of sin in your life, the the most easy question to ask is, where am I hiding from other people? Right? Because sin, by its very nature, causes you to hide. And we all try to hide and not come clean. Some of us try to hide within society, right? Just like Adam and Eve hid within the trees, we hide, and and our view is, I'm okay if I'm better than the worst people. Right? Like, so I speed on the freeway. Any speeders here? You don't know? (laughs) Yeah. Don't hide. Just be honest, right? No. (laughs) None of you raise your hand. You're all more righteous than I am. I speed. Um, But I'm not a crazy speeder, right? I'm not a wicked speeder. I'm I'm not the guy who goes 90. That guy's crazy. I keep it between 78 and 81, right? That's... That's godly speeding. I'm just, I'm just going with the, the crowd, right? That's like, that's not dangerous. Cause, why? Because I'm not the worst person. That's one way we try to hide from, from, from the consequences of our, our sin. Or I'm not the, the worst employee in my office. Or I know a parent worse than me. Or I'm not that guy. I'm not like those people. Some of us know what we're hiding right now because you know what you wouldn't tell me and wouldn't tell anyone else. One of my favorite accountability questions is to ask people, what's the question you don't want me to ask you right now? Would you answer it if someone asked you? Because that's the question. If, If you wouldn't, then there is something about me that I cannot share. There is some alienation that I cannot deal with, and that is the parasitic power of sin is that it causes us to hide in our shame. The good news of the gospel is that it completely liberates it, but to the degree that I am hiding in my shame is the ability that I am submitting to this destructive power of death. Where are you hiding? What sin won't you own up before God or anyone else? That's the first question to ask. I remember my counselor saying to me, and if you had a counselor, they probably said the same thing to you. He said, Jeff, you are only as sick as your secrets. You're only as sick as your secrets. If you walk in the light, Jesus has more than enough grace. If you don't, you're going to live in alienation. So we hide. That's what spiritual death leads to is hiding, but it gets worse, family. (laughs) Because sin 
is a cancer, and cancers, what do they do? They metastasize. They spread. And so it never just stays in a relationship with God. It metastasizes into all of our other relationships as well, bearing the fruit of death. So sin cuts us off from God. Here's the interesting thing. The next thing it cuts us off from is ourselves. We're actually alienated from ourselves. And, and here is how. When we sin, there is a, core, a contradiction at the core of who we are. And it's this. You are a creature. I'm a creature. We are created beings, which means we're dependent. We're not sovereign. We're contingent. We need a sovereign to survive. And what is sin? It is saying, I am sovereign. I'm independent. I can act like a creator with God-like power. So I am pretending to be God while being a creature. And so I cannot live at home with myself. And I have to create this insane framework of sin to convince myself that I'm in the right. Sin leads to darkness in the way we think and we see it with Adam. God catches Adam and then Adam does not come clean. In fact, he, he uh, just blames God. God says, where are you? Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Isn't God brilliant? He doesn't just say, Adam, I'm omniscient. You did it, I know. No, he, says, he wants Adam to come to his own conclusion about what's happened here. He's giving him a chance. But what does Adam do? The man said, the, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. I love that. God, you know, listen. If we just take a step back from the situation and think about this, I mean, God, it's your fault. God, I didn't ask for the woman. You gave me that. You, that was your idea. You thought that was, you said, that's not good. I never agreed to that. And you gave me this woman, and I don't know, I mean, she showed up, and God, I found myself in a situation, and, and she was confused, I was confused, oh, there was just so many mixed emotions, and then how could you put me in that situation, God? God, how could you, how could you do that? Now, now, notice the contradiction here, because it's amazing. It's stunning. Adam's actions show that he's guilty. He's hiding he runs, he hides, he doesn't want to fess up, but when he's finally caught, he immediately puts God in the dock. The minute the creator comes to confront the creation and his sin and say, what have you done wrong? He says, actually, God, let's talk about what you've done wrong in this situation. Now, it's even more ironic than that because, remember, Genesis 2, God says, it's not good for man to be alone. He gives man woman, and how does Adam respond? At last, God, this is the best gift you've ever given to me. You are so good. And he's rejoicing. And he's saying, yes, it's not good for me to be alone. I am so grateful for your gifts. And within a chapter, he's like, God, that was a curse. And it's your fault. It's even more ironic because Adam is clearly the primary culprit in this thing. God said, Adam, you guard the garden. There might be something dangerous you protect my sacred space. I'm giving you the commandment, don't disobey. He knows what God has said, and yet he is putting God in the dock and acting as judge over God 
Because he cannot come to the grips with the fact that he is accountable for disobeying God. Sin metastasizes. And here's something that's so insidious about sin. You know, sin can't create anything. Only God creates. He creates good things. Sin can only distort something that's good. And so, and so what we see here, the, the man, he can't stop thinking in categories of right and wrong, right? He's made in the image of God. He has to think in terms of good and bad, just and unjust. But what does sin do? It takes the categories God gave him, and now I'm going to create my own moral framework. And in this framework, God, you're wrong. I'm the victim. I'm the one who you should have pity on. You should be blamed. I like the way Proverbs 19.3 says it, that when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. At some level, every single human being experiences this where we are cut off from ourselves and in our sin, we, we want to create justifications for why we sin. Paul calls it the futility of our mind. He says we're darkened in our understanding. He says that God gives us over to a debased mind. And, you know, it's amazing. I was just watching various trials of war criminals throughout history this week. And these are the people with the most power who have committed the most atrocities. And it is astonishing how often when they get on the stand, they have a perfectly reasonable explanation for why they did every single thing they did. I was just following orders. This isn't ultimately my fault. It's the people who commanded me. This was actually self-defense. We had to do this in the cause of good. No matter how wickedly a person acts, at some level we think, no, I was justified in a way you weren't. This is the, the psychological death we experience because of sin. And so the question is this, how do you know if you are experiencing the fruit of this in your own life? How do you justify your own behavior? We self-justify. We self-justify. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 7, why do you take the speck out of your brother's eye when there's a log in your own eye? It's that we are far more attuned to the little problems with each other than the huge problems in ourselves. That's what Jesus is saying there, right? That I can, I can see lots of logs out here. Just a speck in here for me. I'm good. And, and so you have to ask yourself, how do I do this? How do I seek to make myself right in my own eyes? Proverbs says every way of a man is right in his own eyes. So whatever you did today, there was some justification for it that feels good to you most of the time. Right? I, maybe you're doing that right now as I'm preaching this sermon and I'm saying this. You're thinking, ooh, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this. Oh, that is so good. I got to send him this. Or maybe you're sitting next to your spouse and you're like, get him, Jeff. Get him. This is what they do. Right? There are so many ways that, that we think that God's word applies primarily to other people than ourselves. And so you have to ask yourself, where am I right in my own eyes? Where do I minimize? Where do I judge myself by my intentions and other people by their actions? Where do I judge someone harshly when I am exhibiting the exact same behaviors? See, that's what sin does. This is why it's so insidious. You sin, you hide from God, and then sin in your mind downplays the sinfulness of sin. <laughs> See how insidious this is? I did it, I hide, oh, and it's not a big deal. In fact, it's someone else's fault. So, we distrust God 
We hide from him. We blame God. There is spiritual death. There is psychological death. Finally, there's social death. And you can kind of see the progression here, right? That, it, that if you're cut off from God and you're cut off from yourself, ultimately, who do you trust? We've already decided God isn't trustworthy, right? Adam and Eve have already concluded that. God's holding out on us. He's not good. I have to trust me. Well, what happens when you look at any other human being? Can you trust them? You've already made the decision not to trust God. So ultimately, the only person you can trust is you and only your authority is what matters. And this is how relationships break down into just power and control. This is social death. This is very interesting. Adam and Eve hide the minute they sin. But notice, the first person they hide from isn't God. Who do they hide from? Each other. Yeah, you whispered it. Each other. Look at this. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And what do they do? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We looked at this last week, that they thought that by taking the fruit, they were going to be shrewd. They end up just realizing what? They're nude. They, they, they try to claim autonomy from God, and they realize how vulnerable and dependent and weak and now corrupted they are, and they say, don't look at me. And it's not just, ooh, we're naked, don't look at me. It's, I, I can't be fully seen by you because I don't trust you. I know something's wrong with you, and, and you can't look at this, and they distrust each other. And it's, we can see why, right? When God is the ultimate point of reference and we're submitting to his authority, then relationships can flourish because we agree on the standard of how we're going to treat each other. But when we push God aside as the standard, who becomes the standard? Me. So now I'm God, right? Who is that other person? A rival God. They are ultimate. And what are they? They're a threat to my sovereignty now. And now we have to figure out whose standards are we going to play by? And I, and I can't trust you. That's why they cover up. And, and it's interesting. I think one of the reasons they cover up is this. I was reading it this week. Henri Blochet, in his commentary, he has a beautiful point about this. It's brilliant. You think of a man and a woman just standing there looking at each other. <laughs> Do you know what their bodies say to each other? You are not independent. <laughs> if we're going to create more life, you actually need me and I need you. Their, their very embodied existence shows that they are not God. That, that actually, I can't do this without you. I need you. We need to cooperate. And so their bodies proclaim interdependence, but what is sin? It's a proclamation of independence. And so now, the difference between man and woman, instead of being a beautiful complementary thing, now it's a threat. This person is different. I don't know if I can trust them. I, they might try to get control over me, and we go on to see that when, when God reads off the curses between man and woman. It's a now a power-grab relationship where we're always seizing for control. Why? Because you have two rival gods, and only one can win. Does that make sense? When you reject God as the authority, authority's up for grabs. And that leads to social death. We are cut off from loving, trusting relationships with each other. Now, here's the problem. Our inclination is to mistrust as sinful human beings, but we also have good reasons to mistrust people because they do horrible things. People break our trust all the time. 
And so we have legitimate reasons not to trust people, and we have this sinful thing festering in us that says, I can never trust people, and I need to be God. And so it is almost impossible for us to get along. We have no shared standard. You want to be God? I want to be God. Who's going to win? What power differential is going to play out? We instinctively mistrust. Let me give you an example from this week. I'm driving by, and I see this car, and someone posted a sign in their back windshield, uh, and it said, please stop breaking into this car. There is nothing of value inside this car. And I thought three things at the same time. Man, <laughs> stinks to be that person. That was one. Like, I'd broken into a lot. Two, I'm like, by the end of the day, that window's broken, right? Because the minute a criminal sees, like, don't do this, like, oh, man, I'm going to do that, right? That's sin. The minute we have a law, right, sin gets activated on us. Here's the third thing I thought. Man, I wonder what's in the car. I bet there's something really good in the car because he's telling me there's something not good in the car. Now, what is that? That's sin. It's mistrust that we don't take people at face value. We assume they're holding out on us. And when there's an erosion of trust, relationships just break down to power. I need to protect myself from you. You need to protect myself from me because clearly we can't trust each other. And that's like modern American political discourse right now, isn't it? That each side has their own facts, has their own narratives, and we will instinctively on one side disbelieve what the other person says and say, that's not true. It's actually just a veiled attempt to grab what? Power. And the other side says, nope, that's not true. It's a veiled attempt to grab power. There is no shared standard, and so there's no trust. And when there's no trust, everything is down to power dynamics and power differentials and a differentiation and a, and a suspicion that if you get power, you're going to use it against me. Right? O only when power is submitted to a higher standard and that power is stewarded for the good of others does power become a good thing and you can trust people. And so this is social death. And, and so we have to ask then, how do we experience this in relationships? Well, how much do you vie for power and control in every relationship you're in? How much do you need to cling to power? If you're, you think about your coworkers, do you have any interest in their life apart from what they can do for you at work? Are your coworkers just instrumentalized, like, well, they're kind of widgets that help me get where I want to get? I don't really care about them as human beings, just if they care about the way they contribute to my success at work. What is that? That's, that's just vying for power in relationships. Parents, this is a tough one, isn't it? And, and here's why. Like, you have authority over your kids, but God tells you how to use it. And he says, raise up these children, who are actually my children, God says, to, to love Jesus and follow him for a lifetime. Now, here's the problem with that. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of prayer. It's a lot of patience. It's a lot of suffering. It's a lot of, I'm sorry, and working through issues. You know what's easier? Ruling your kids. It's more convenient to rule with an iron fist, right? Not because I care about what they become, but because it's easier for me to maintain what? Control. Control. In, in relationships with other people or with my spouse, do I weaponize emotions to manipulate them to do something? What am I, I doing? It's, it's all come down to power. We, we can't be vulnerable with each other because I don't trust your intentions. I don't trust you. That's the social decay of sin. You see it metastasize into societies. And when there's no trust in a society, it's very hard to have a society. There has to be some shared standard that we abide by. This is, the, this is the problem, family. 
And, and it's amazing, you know, as you read through the Bible, that, that sin brings death, and death seems to be kicking and alive. <laughs> Paul says death bears fruit. It bears more death and corruption and cuts us off and disintegrates us from one another. And it's like this spiral that's circling, and God has to keep intervening to keep us from going to our own ruin. Because ultimately, apart from God's intervention, the trajectory goes on forever. That we experience physical death, but ultimately spiritual, psychological, social, all those deaths on an infinite loop. It's just the, it's the, it's the gravitational pull of sin unless God does something. And you have to understand what bad news that is to understand what good news the gospel is. See, when we sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned, Humanity sinned. And all the children that Adam and Eve bore, it bore the fruit of death. And so now when we come into the world, we don't come in as blank slates. We're not neutral. The Bible says that we are born dead in sin, children of wrath. And and I'll I'll tell you, I've talked to enough people, especially Americans, they really don't like that idea. That how because of Adam and Eve's sin do we inherit guilt and corruption? And what is it? That's not fair. That's not fair that that's how life works. What you're really saying is, if I were in Adam and Eve's position, I would make what? A better decision. God should have given me the ball, and I just would caution you from thinking like that, because even that is the presumption of sin. That really, I just want God to deal with me by that level of fairness, rather than the way he chooses to deal with all of us, which is by Grace. Grace. God says it this way. If because of one man's trespass, Adam's death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Here's what he's saying. That death came through one, salvation comes through one, and the salvation you get from Jesus is not fair. It does not pay you according to your works. It's all by Jesus' work, and it's according to God's grace. It's grace. And this is what levels us to the dust, right? Because in our culture, there's this sense that there's a lot of problems in the world, but guess where the solution is? Right here. The solution's in you to fix the problems. And the Bible says there's a ton of problems in the world, and the chief problem for each human being is where? Inside. And do you know where the solution is? Outside. It's not in you. It's from another world. It's from Jesus, our champion, fighting a battle we can't win to intervene and save us. God is the one who bridges the gap to overcome our alienation. God's the one who speaks truth to put us back in our right minds. God is the one who heals relationships so that we can use power well and share and not vie for competition, but actually use power to serve. It is not until Jesus comes that these problems get fixed. And and so that's where we have to end, family, is that until you see this as really bad news, you won't rejoice in the good news, that Jesus, as we often say around here, does for us what we can't do for ourselves. He pays a penalty for our sin that we couldn't pay. He rises with power we don't have so that we can live forever. And until you see how bad this is, you will not see the good news is that good. Let's pray.
Jesus, would we despair of thinking that, that we can cure the cancer here? Lord, our, our condition is terminal, and only you can save us from it. And so, would we see the direness of our plight and rejoice, Jesus, that you have come to reclaim this world for yourself and to reclaim us? Would we see the depth of your grace in a new way when we cling to you and your wondrous love? Pray in your name. Amen.